All right, Frank Bush, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing, my friend? <laughs> Brett, I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, it's been a little while since we've chatted. So what have you been up to since uh, your retirement from USA Swimming? Uh, Patty and I, my wife, decided um, probably when I had a year left in Colorado Springs at my position that we would move back to Tucson. And so after I um, re retired from the position at USA Swimming, we came back, rented a home. We're currently building a home, which should, should be complete here sometime in the middle of April. And, um, and I've been working uh, part-time in a foundation that uh, works exclusively with nonprofits. And so it's been, um, I've had a chance to do things that when you're full-time coach or full-time position and, and having to take care of that, you never have enough time. And so I've been able to reach out and give back to this community that was so good to me for so many years. And I'm involved in things like Habitat for Humanity and mm. uh, doing laundry for the migrants that are crossing the border and I'm involved with the Boys and Girls Club. So I'm, I'm, I'm staying busy and really enjoy what I'm doing. Yeah, that's awesome. You have, you've got grandkids, right? Six, five oh, wow. granddaughters and a brand new grandson. Oh wow, that's cool! Very cool. Yeah, it's been great. We get and obviously get a chance to do quite a bit of traveling to visit them. So that's been that's been it's it. You hear about what it's like to be a grandpa, but when until you actually experience it, it's just the best. Yeah. So what uh, is it tough for you not to be on the pool deck every day? Or have you enjoyed? Is that part of your life? Kind of. Glad to be done with that. Well, I don't want to say I'm, I'm glad to be done with it, but I'm happy. Um, I'm very happy not to be in charge of anyone anymore. Mm. I, I think that um, I gave over 50 years to the sport of swimming from a coaching standpoint, and it was an amazing 50 years. But now it's time for me to um, do something different. And not everybody has that opportunity. And I just wanted to make sure that after all those years and all those absentees from my family and from just, you know, how, how the draw of that, I wanted to be able to do something else in my life um, while I was still young enough and active enough to do it. So I miss the, the most important thing that I missed or the, or the thing that I missed the most is the relationships with the athletes and with uh, the other coaches, but particularly with the athletes. Yeah, absolutely. What are the things you learned over time that you feel like are important for younger coaches to, to hear? Well, it's, it, it is different now. Um, than it was uh, many, many um, moons ago um, in, in regards to I, Augie, my son, is the head coach here at the university, and we get together 
quite often and, and spend a lot of time ex exchanging ideas and talking. But I think the critical thing for, for young coaches is to um, probably be a, a very good listener. Uh, I've always believed if you, if you allow someone to talk long enough that they'll tell you what they're really thinking. And so uh, understand your athletes, be a good listener. And then, then I think it's it, today, I think you need to be um, very deliberate in the direction that you give them and why you're giving them that direction. Uh, the, I think there are more, I don't want to say challenges from athletes, but I think they're more, they want to be more involved with the process where it used to be, maybe you would follow a coach blindly. Now it's a little bit more of, okay, I'm going to follow you, but I want to know why I'm going to follow you. So I think being a good listener and making sure that you're detailed in the way in which you explain things to young athletes is very important. Yeah. That's awesome. Really good advice there. Yeah. Uh, I just had a conversation with one of your longtime assistants, Rick DeMont, and, and he was telling me that, you know, you gave him the freedom to be able to create within the structure and within a program and the trust within that as well. Um, how, how did you approach that with assistant coaches as, as a head coach, managing your assistants and being able to give them the chance to create? I think every organization, and when I say an organization, I mean whether it's swim team or a business or something, you, you, you kind of have a couple of, of, of foundations that you want to follow. So, for instance, um, uh, let's just take swim team X out in somewhere. I think whatever you really <clears throat> believe in, you need to make sure that everyone in the organization understands that. So whether it's obviously attending practice or making sure that, you know, they focus and pay attention and making sure that they tell the truth and making sure that they realize that they're part of something that's bigger than them. So we started off with something like that. And then we had sort of a, 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 we had a weekly outline that I thought was important that we follow. So every group could have some interchangeable athletes. So for instance, on Monday afternoon or Monday morning, we would stress something, whether it was aerobic training or, or whether it was kicking or whether it was pulling or, or whether it was um, race pace. So I think, and then once you do that, then you can turn your, your coaches loose because number one, if you have, if, if, if we have a, an athlete that is predominantly a hundred swimmer, but we need them to be able to do a, a good 200 as well. And then they're also on the four by 50 relay. You can interchange them at different times with, with, you know, a couple of times a week, um, maybe stretch them up to something a little bit differently so they could be in a different group, but yet the coaches are all on the same page with that. And that way you don't get the, the, um, a repetitive where, okay, coach DeMont just did, 
a whole set of, you know, quality 50s on Monday afternoon where the rest of the groups were all doing aerobic. And so that way, and, and you want your coaches to have autonomy. You want them to use their creativity. You want them to be, um, be able to be, to grow as a coach. And that's critical. I think if I would just write out a bunch of practices and give those pieces of paper to coaches, they don't own it. And Mm. you want your coaching staff to have skin in the game. And that way they're, they're all in and they trust you and you trust them. And that's, in my opinion, that's what makes for a great staff. Yeah. How did you keep everybody on the same page? You know, you want them to have the freedom to create and, but you also want to stay within the, the boundaries or the system of what you believe in and, and you want everybody working together. What are some of the things you could recommend to, to coaches just to kind of keep everybody on the same page? Well, the first thing you would want to do is make sure that you met with your staff once a week and just, just talk about swimming and talk about the athletes. Is there anybody in particular that we're, that we're that's struggling right now? Is there anyone that's um, overmatched or, or being overtrained? And what, what, tell me, let's, let's talk about what we've done that, that you think has been very productive and, and you think is, we want, we need to do more of. So it really was just a matter of, of regular communication and and making sure that we were covering the bases with our athletes. So if you have a structure set up where you know what each, you know what the team is emphasizing throughout the week, there's really never any, and, and also doing something together as a team. So I'll give an example on Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, the majority of the team was in the weight room prior to afternoon practice. And as you know, most, most of the time in the weight room, the probably 75% of the exercises are upper body. Uh, there's a few lower body exercises, but the majority of them were upper body exercises. So we would, we would do a, a, a kick set as a team that was very significant. And when I say significant, I'm talking about probably start at about 3000. And sometimes we would build on that, but, but everyone knew that when they came up from the weight room, that it was going to be a very brief warm up, And then we were going to do some serious kicking. Now I didn't, my distance swimmers weren't involved in the weight room per se in that, in, in that they would go in and lift, but they would lift at different times of the week and they would lift in a, a different structure. So they would be in the pool when the other athletes were in the weight room and we would do some, some significantly long pull sets on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons. Mm. So while, while the majority of the team was in the weight room, the distance kids were doing a lot of pulling. So they were basically getting the same type of you know, strength training, so to speak, and then when the team came up, the distance kids were finished with their pull set. Obviously, the kids that were in the weight room were finished with their weight room work. And we all joined together and we did something together twice a week 
and that was kick sets because it was a very it, it's very difficult to ask people that are focusing on fifties and hundreds to to focus on hundreds that are being done by your distance swimmers because they're they're just not relevant. You can you can take a sprinter and ask them to do x amount of hundreds but as you know after a period of time there's going to be a drop off where distance swimmers are going to be much more um they're going to be much more consistent yeah so uh, but but when it comes to kicking sprinters can kick all day long just like anybody else on the team and it was great because kicking is something someone told me one time that kicking is is um 90 percent willpower so it wasn't it wasn't going to do something where it was going to ruin anyone for the season it was only going to make you better and if you look at the best athletes in the world i don't care what stroke they swim and what distance they swim they are good kickers mm. so we would just lean on their legs and it didn't matter if they were 50 100 people or if they were 1650 people because as you know now, everybody that swims a mile, they practically they pretty much six feet an entire mile, and and everybody that's the best in the fifty and the hundred and the two hundred, and it doesn't matter what stroke, they're great kickers. So that's what we did because I really felt like we needed to do something together that every person on the team respected each other for what they were doing at the same time in the pool, and that kept us close as a team. Yeah, because you can't, sure. you can't, you can't hide on a kickboard. No, you know, you're everybody can see what everybody else is doing. Yeah, and one of my struggles at times was, you know, with a big team too. As the head coach, everybody kind of wants some association with the head coach. Obviously, you know, you come to that college to swim for a, a certain team and a certain coach, and you want to have some contact with that head coach, but you can't obviously be everybody's head coach. So was this also a way for you to be able to get around and see everybody and connect with everybody on the team? Absolutely. And, um, you know, I would, when someone's kicking on it, well, two things, when someone is kicking on a, on a kickboard, you can, you can talk to them, you know, and we kicked long course pretty much all the time because it, long course you it's like swimming there's no there's no wall to to um, rest on or anything else you're it's it's kicking and it's kicking for real so i could yell out to somebody hey brett um you told me you wanted to be a 133 200 freestyler and yet i've got women over here that are that want to be 144 freestylers and they're beating you. So what's the deal? You know, and I would, and I don't mean that call yeah. out to embarrass them or anything. It was yeah. all about motivation and we would have fun with lots of stuff. The other thing I think is important is when you have your various groups at different places in the pool, you know, let's just say you would, um, you send your kids on the, you know, a thousand one up or whatever they were doing whatever it was to kind of get them started. You as the head coach, make sure you walk around the pool and, and talk to the kids. And we did dry land together um, before, almost before every single practice. So I made sure that, um, that I 
tried to make contact with every single athlete on the team every single day in in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Just just walking around the pool deck. Yep. That during dry land, just checking on everybody because you're right. They did come to your school because you were the head coach. And then I spent, I can't tell you, I'm, you know, my time between morning practice and afternoon practice, athletes were lined up outside my door just to talk about life, to talk mm. about what their relationships, their family, school, things that were going on. If they were struggling with one of the coaches on the staff, you, know, you would just, you would just spend time being a good listener. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you were at it for a fairly long time at Arizona before you won your first national championship, right? Yeah, 19 years. Wow. So well, well, what was the difference on the, on that 19th year? You know, what was it, uh, was it just that you had figured some things out? Did you just have the right pieces at the right time or was it a culture? What, what happened that year where you feel like it's separated from every other year? Well, we had been runner up. Um, several times at, at various times throughout the 22 years I was there, and, and and we had a lot of a lot of top five finishes and a lot of top three and top two and things like that. So, mm. you know, Brett, you, you know as well as I do, it, it really <clears throat> when when you're when you're at a school and you're battling with all these other great teams, you just it it takes it just takes the right, the right formula at the right time. And, and that's pretty much what it was with us. We had, we had the right women, we, we had the right men and, um, and it just, it was, it was our time. So uh, there's, there's no magic to it. It's just, um, it's just being able to have the right kids at the right time and, and and then swimming at the very at, the, at their very best. So uh, there was no. I felt like it took me forever, you know, to 19 years to you know, to finally beat some some of our rivals for all those years. But um, you know, I was watching the Super Bowl and it took Andy Reid 21 years. So I, I guess I felt a little better than him. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, you were having amazing success, like you talk about, but you're not, you're not winning the big one in the end, and then you get there. So, and you and you won team titles with both the men and the women. Was there, were there differences in coaching the two that you felt that that were challenging? Well, I think, it, it, I mean, without a doubt, there's there's a there's. Um, there's, I think, a little bit more emotion involved, um, different types of emotion, but a certain amount of emotion involved uh, with each team. And I think it's important to discern that and know when when to say when and when not to. That, that just comes with experience. Mm. But um, we... we, we we had some great leaders on each side and that, uh, that always helps. So yeah, it's for all those coaches out there that coach both men and women, whether it's at the 
collegiate level or the club level, uh, you can't you can't just throw a blanket over men and women and expect it to be the same. There there are going to be some differences on some, in, in the way in which people handle the emotion and the drama that happens within a team. So you have to pay attention to that and and um, make sure that you're make sure that you're sensitive to it. Yeah. Yeah. There are a couple of people in your mind that stood out as athletes that made, you know, all the right changes and all the right moves and, and bought into the program and had success at the highest level. Um, I mean, someone that comes to mind for me is Lacey Neymeyer. I mean, is there someone like that? Or maybe just talk about Lacey a little bit in terms of what made her special. Well, I was very fortunate to be around some amazing athletes. And as a coach, you can't always predict that that someone is going to join your team and have this this uh, incredible success. I mean, you can't write this stuff. And certainly Lacey being from Tucson and swimming in the club program and, uh, you know, watching her watch us, uh, they would, the, the club team would practice after the university team. And you know, she said the other day that she would, she would try and get there um, sometimes just to hear what was being said and to watch practices. So, she she was she was very very special and, and a and a leader in every sense of the word. She had she had values and standards that she just stood on and 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 that was the way her life was led. And then you you see these uh, you know you you get a guy who walks on from Elko, Nevada, who wasn't even good enough to be on 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 our women's team and all of a sudden after four years he's he's an all-american he finishes in the top eight in an event and uh, and then you get someone like a laura jackson who walks on from el paso texas and you you kind of think oh boy was you know did what was what's happening here and within a couple of years she's an american record holder and so and then you get a guy like Wright Nathling, who is a distance swimmer and winds up winning a gold medal in, in, uh, in the four by one relay for South Africa and get fourth in the Olympics in the 100 freestyle. So I think that just kind of tells you that number one, sometimes a coach doesn't know what the heck they're talking about. And number two, these people become so motivated and so determined that. And you you didn't see that when they when you first start working with them, but like everybody else, you you're blessed sometimes with some of these amazing people that don't even know that they have this within them. And your job is to is to get a sense for for that and how you can figure out to make sure that you find the light switch for them and. You know, it's uh, it's amazing how life works sometimes. Yeah. 
For sure. I mean, you had some incredible athletes that I loved, um, you know, coaching against at Auburn when I was there. Just I would just admire all the people that you had had just mentioned. And and I, one of the things that I really loved uh, watching you from a distance is that the the kids really bought into your team concept and they really loved competing for you and they loved competing for Arizona. You know, anytime they would finish a race, they'd throw up the, the, the Arizona sign that they, they did with their hands. And you could just tell they had a real passion for swimming for the school. How did you kind of instill that passion in, in, and pride in, in swimming for Arizona? Well, I, I felt like Arizona gave me an opportunity. I have no idea to this day why they hired me. Uh, I, I, was, I was a young coach coaching at a school that um, had its limits. And we had some success, but I just was so grateful to the university for choosing me. And, um, and I just felt like if you came to Arizona, I wanted to make sure it was going to be a, a great experience for you and realize that you committed to us. So we have to be fully committed to you. And mm. what that meant was, it was kind of like I was talking to you earlier. We had this, we called, we called it the, the, the wildcat code. Um, and it was, you know, show up, pay attention, tell the truth and honor your team with your effort. And I felt like showing up was never an issue. Our kids, they would meet me at the door at, uh, you know, at five 30 in the morning when we didn't have practice until six because they wanted to stretch for a while or whatever. And Mm. so, but paying attention, think of how difficult it is to pay attention and you, you as a great swimmer, the, the things that you had to overcome to focus when all you saw was a black line and heard a lot of slushing going on in your ears. So the, the, the great ones are the ones that can focus through that stuff and focus through it when they're, they're in pain. So we really emphasize paying attention. And then telling the truth is critical because the first time you don't, it just snowballs and, and it's going to affect everybody. And then to honor your team with your effort was a sense of pride that, so the very first meeting of the year, every year I would stand behind a block. The team is sitting on the edge of the pool and I would stand behind a block and I, I would talk about relays for, for obvious reasons, but, meaning that they're double points. So they're critical at the highest level of our sport at the NCAA championships. But they also, you need to know what it means that you, you four people have been honored, have been selected to represent everybody else that's on the side of the pool. You four are going to operate in such a way in which not only do you represent those people, but you represent your school and you represent everybody that's in the stands cheering for you. And so it's, it's, a, it's an honor to be part of that. And this is what you need to do when you think about being on a relay and, and where you're going to be, how you're going to stand, what you're going to say. You need to know if, you're, if the person that's on the block likes 
you to say something before they're getting ready to do their exchange or maybe not. And, and so you, you, you sort of create a bond right away from day one about what it means to be part of the Arizona Swimming and Diving Program. And if you're fortunate enough to be on a relay, what that means. But everybody that's here is part of this family. And whatever you do, whatever decisions you make, however hard you train, whatever you, however you represent the school and the community is going to affect every single, every single person that's not only sitting here, but sat here before you and will sit here after you're gone. So we talked a lot about, about what that means to represent the university, your team, your, your family, everything, because this was one big family. I love that message, man. It's so powerful. Especially I could just visualize you standing there talking to the team behind the block there as you, as you say all that stuff, it's, that's, uh, that's it. I mean, you set the, the groundwork and the vision from the, from the very first meeting, right? Absolutely. And, and I tried to do that with the national team as well. I mean, you picture someone like Michael Phelps, who has been on five Olympic teams and you picture someone that's making their first Olympic team. Mm. And, and you're scratching your head and you're thinking, okay, what can I say that can relate to Michael? And what can I say that's going to relate to this first time Olympian? And to me, it was, we need to figure out, we need to make sure that everybody understands that you are representing a country, something way bigger than probably anything you ever thought in your life. And so I would pull out just a small American flag and I would say, you know, this, this thing is just a piece of cloth. But what makes this different is this piece of cloth represents so many things in our history. Think of all the people that have died for this piece of cloth. Think of all the people that have lost limbs for this piece of cloth. Think of all the people that have sacrificed for this piece of cloth. And even though it's just a piece of cloth, you're going to have this symbol on the side of your cap and on your warm-ups and on the TV screen, and millions of people are going to be have such pride for you because you're representing this country. And, and to me, that was, the, that was the only message I could figure out to say to such a wide variety of experience on an Olympic team, but it was the uniting factor that all of a sudden it was like, wow, I, I can. So when you stand on, if you're fortunate enough to be on the podium and they play the national anthem, now you know why people from America want you and expect you to put your hand on your heart and you don't have to sing. It's going to be a very emotional moment, but to, to respect it and to respect the flag and to respect your country, you want to put your hand over your heart and, and you want to just allow yourself to be in that moment. And I think that resonated with the, the two, with the two teams that I was fortunate enough to lead but everybody needs to look for it. whatever it is that's going to strengthen the bond of their team 
and, and their situation. And it doesn't matter if it's a club program or a university or the Olympic team. There's got to be a common bond that everybody can, can relate to and feel like they're a part of. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's definitely what you did a great job of at both in both situations at the university of Arizona and with USA swimming had great success. What was the reasoning for wanting to become the national team director? What was the, um, driving force behind that? You know, I wasn't necessarily looking to leave, uh, Arizona. I, 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 I I would be lying if I didn't say I was, kind of exhausted at the end of years of, um, mm. of coaching 50, 60 athletes. It, it, uh, it, it, it takes its toll on you and yeah. the recruiting and everything else that, that's, that goes on. But, um, I just got a call from Chuck Welgus and I didn't really in probably the, I don't know, 15, years or whatever I think Chuck took over in 1997 and then um, I came on in 11 so that would be 14 years so in in the 14 years that Chuck was leading and I was at Arizona I would say we probably had a combination of about five minutes of, of speaking to each other not not and the only time I really saw Chuck is when um, he would come and the, the, the teams that I had made because I was fortunate enough to have some athletes make the team. He would come and then obviously at nationals, we would exchange greetings or something like that. But I was never really close with USA swimming or, or pretty much anywhere, anyone there at USA swimming, except for some of the high, the, the high performance people that would come and visit me. And so I really wasn't looking and he just, called me out of blue and said, we would, um, I think you're <clears throat> someone that would, would do a very good job taking this position. And, and I just, I was like, well, I'm, I'm really, that's not what I'm thinking. <laughs> and he said, well, please just think about it and I'll get, and could we have another conversation? And this is, uh, this is, I want to say it was around Thanksgiving or before Christmas or something. And I just said, Chuck, please, I, I, I'm very grateful for the call. I'm very grateful for, for you even reaching out to me, but could, could we just, the holidays are coming up and, and um, let's maybe we could talk afterwards. So he called me the week after probably the first week of January and said, I'd really like to meet with you. Would you consider that? And I said, well, sure, uh, but you're not coming to Tucson and I'm not coming to Colorado Springs because I don't want anyone to see us together. I don't want to lose my job over this and I don't want, you know, I don't want social media or anything else like that. So we met mm. in Phoenix, uh, drove up and he flew down and we met in Phoenix. And honestly, after just sitting there and talking for four hours with him, I remember walking out to the car where my wife was waiting and I said, Patty, I, I would I would work for this guy in a heartbeat. He is just a phenomenal individual, mm. and so that's kind of how it all went down. And um, it just I just thought it was if I was going to do anything different, now was the time to do it. And, and that's that's how it worked. 
That's awesome. So, I mean, you got to be around some of the greatest athletes in history and, and influence their careers in, in a positive way as well. What are, what are a couple of things that you felt like you could do in that role and, and maybe some of the things that you're most proud of that you did do? Uh, yeah, to say I was fortunate would be an understatement to, to be around Michael Phelps for, I was in every Olympics. I was at every Olympics that Michael swam and, all the way back to Sydney, you know, when he was 15 years old and, and was, I think, fifth in the 200 butterfly. And uh, to watch Bob handle a 15-year-old in that, in that situation and being around all these other great coaches that were <clears throat> part of all these staffs. And you just, you, you appreciated their effort and the time and energy that they spent working with their athletes. And I think all I wanted to do was I wanted to help them. I wanted to help them in any way I could be the very best they could be to, to allow America to, to continue to have great success. And I just, um, that's all I thought about. So whatever I could do to help the coaches, and the athletes, because it's like I used to tell athletic directors, and I would tell the same thing to a college president. Hey, without students, we don't have a job. Without athletes, we don't have a job. So our focus needs to be number one on them. And that doesn't always mean that you just give them everything. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about sometimes they need Sometimes they need a pat on the back and other times they need discipline, mm. but always keep them first and foremost in every decision that we're going to make. And I think that was maybe a little bit different approach when I got to USA swimming was let's remember what this is all about. This is about the athletes. So how do we help them be the very best they can be? And started with, well, we need to change how we do the funding. We need to change um, how we select athletes for teams. We need to we need to we need to make sure that our coaches are being educated by the very best, not just the the, the swimming part of it, but the, the psychological part of our sport. We need to make sure that every single practitioner that we have on every one of our teams has more letters behind their name than any other, any other teams in the world. We need to make sure that if we're, if we're considered to being the best, the best team in the world, we should have the best practitioners, the best coaches, the best organization, the best funding, the best everything. And I wanted to make sure that that's what we did. And, um, and I just wanted to make sure that coaches could reach out to me and, let me know if there was anything I could do to help them be better at what they were doing. Yeah. Well, I think you certainly achieved that. It was uh, a great period of time for USA swimming. And like you said, you had some incredible athletes around at that time. You, you were able to be in an observational role as well, whereas you're not as hands-on like you would be if you were part of the coaching staff. So what did you observe from Michael? What, like watching Michael and, 
and do the things that he did. Um, is it just, is it just all talent or what can we learn from Michael that we can say everybody can, could do similar things and, and have success? I think what separates why, when you look at everyone in the world that makes it to the Olympics or the world championships or the NCAA, the final group of eight, they're all extremely talented. They all have great talent. But why does someone get their hand on the wall before everybody else in that talent pool? And I really believe it boils down to the two things that you have complete control over, and that is the attitude that you take and the work ethic that you apply. And Michael's attitude was, I'm in this to win. And his work ethic was was second to none. He he worked hard at what he did, and his attitude was his effort and his attitude was at the highest level. Needless to say, he was extremely talented, uh, very very talented. But so was so were a lot of others that would challenge him along his career. But his determination. And his work ethic were second to none. I'm always and impressed. I think that's really, yes, sorry. I, I think that's really. I think that's really important for everybody to understand. There, there are two things that we all have complete control over in our lives: our effort and our attitude. Uh, on, on, no matter what we decide to get involved in, whether it's business or sport or just how we get up every day, it's. Your attitude and your effort, you have complete control over. You may not have control over the amount of talent you have, the amount of intelligence that you have, but you do have control over those two things. What enabled him to go out there and uh, perform under that type of pressure? Just a a sense of he was able to Number one, be confident. He was he was confident, and number two, his ability to focus and 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 block everything else out. I mean, you you just when he walked out on the pool deck, you just knew that if 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 somebody was going to beat him, he was going to make sure that blood was coming out of their eyes and their ears because that's what it was going to take in order to beat Michael Phelps. Mm. so he just had he had a mindset i mean even when he wasn't at his best and he would be probably the first to admit that the london games he was not at his best but um you know he still walked away with six medals i think four gold from london but his determination there there he was uh in our sport well, just in all spite, I consider him the greatest athlete I've ever seen. Mm. Yeah, I had a situation in Rio that I that I tell people from time to time. My experience with Michael was very limited, but I, I was an observer as well. But in Rio, I remember he swam a race. I can't remember which one it was, but I know he had an event within the next 30 minutes after that race. And so what I, I was in the warm down pool 
which was just outside the competition pool. And you obviously had to, you know, go through some tunnels and get to the warm down pool. Well, it must've been within this, the space of about two minutes from him winning an Olympic gold medal to the time that I saw him, maybe even less than two minutes. So I'm watching him on the big screen win this medal and had his reaction. I turn around, talk to one of my athletes, turn back around and then there's Michael right in front of me and he's running towards the warm down pool and he dives in and he starts cooling down immediately. So it was like he went from being Olympic champion to he flicked a switch and was like, okay, on to the next one. Now I know that's easy to say when you win, but there was, he certainly had moments where he would have to um, figure out those same situations, whether he won or not. But from what I could tell, he compartmentalized things very well. He was able to focus really intently on a specific moment and then switch off and move on to the next moment very quickly. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I, I, don't, I couldn't say it any better. Yeah, I had just had that experience. It stuck in my mind like, wow, there's Michael. I just saw him win and boom, here he is. And then, and then he goes back and, you know, 30 minutes later, he's, I think he's swimming on a relay with, with his teammates. And like you said, you know, they're going to have to do something special to swim past Michael Phelps. And, and it was very rare that that ever happened, you know. When I was a young coach, I used to, um, I used to watch other coaches coach like Eddie and coaches that were successful and, and a little bit older than I was. And, and not only that, but I would also watch the best athletes warm up and you can learn so much just by watching and athletes, even at, at the Olympic level on, on the American team, they would watch Michael do exactly what you just said, put his hand on the wall, win an event at the highest level at the Olympic games and knowing it already had it planned out in his mind what he needed to do to get ready for the next thing. And that's, uh, that I think, yes, experience is, 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 is your best teacher, but in order to gain experience, you need to, to pay attention to what's going on in front of you to see that and to see how people warm up, how people warm down, how people coach at the highest level. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me this, how do you deal with, how did you deal with jealousy and um, competition, let's say, and and maybe where it got to the point where it was, where it was even ugly. I mean, recruiting can get ugly sometimes and things like that, but how did you deal with your success and, and other people's jealousy? Well, I tried to just, uh, I really just tried to focus on, 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 on us, on our, on our program. And I really didn't, I didn't get very involved in, in social media or anything like that. And I didn't, um, and as far as athletes on the team, all sports think, just think about how all sports operate with similar issues uh, in basketball you have the starting five what 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 is the person that's number 10 off the bench how do you keep them engaged involved and ready 
Um, you've got, you know, maybe 25 men on your team and you realize that there's probably, you're hoping that there's, um, the, the core is, is, is going to be roughly around about eight men, let's, let's just say, or eight women out of that 25. And how do you keep the people that know that they're probably not going to make it to the NCAAs when you're going to be able to select 18 people? What are those other seven thinking about? How do they, how do they stay engaged in all this in four years of training hard yet still never make it to the big stage? And it, as a coach, that, 21st, that 25th person has to be just as important and follow everything the same way and is treated the same way as the best athlete on your team. And that's, I know that sounds, that sounds um, unrealistic, but it, it is very realistic. You don't treat someone better because they're better than someone else. Now you may, you may set your practices up that they, that you challenge your best athletes and, and you expect everyone to, to sort of go along with that same program, maybe different intervals or maybe a little bit different emphasis or something, but you have to treat everyone the same because they're, they've, they've committed to you. You've got to commit to them. And when they feel that, you can negate a lot of the jealousy and you can negate a lot of, of the, you know, talking behind the better athletes backs or the, or the, some of the jealousies and, and the drama that goes on with the team. Uh, can you ever completely eliminate that? There are going to be some years when it's more difficult than others, but I think if you treat everyone the same, then at least you have a chance to keep a united front and, and, and people that, I mean, how many times have in, in your coaching career as a young coach, when you were coaching age group kids, a kid would come up to you and, and say, well, I, I beat her every time in practice and she beats me all the time in meets. And you, you, the only answer you can say is, well, you know in your heart life's not fair that the one that wins in the meets all the time at, say, at the 12 and unders is, is just more talented. But that doesn't mean that you can't teach someone the, the, the attitude and the effort part of the, of the puzzle, and maybe eventually they can work their way closer to that person that maybe isn't at the same work ethic that somebody else is. So there's always all sorts of ways in which you can challenge and put a bar up for someone that's on the team for them to accomplish something and, and keep them engaged and keep them united in, in what they're doing. So there's, I don't think there's a perfect way because we're all humans and we all want to be the best and we all want to be noticed and we all want to be congratulated and we all want to be, feel like we're, we're contributing. And I think that's the most important part is that you make sure that everyone on the team has something con to contribute and you point that out throughout the year of what that means to the whole team. Yeah. 
Absolutely, for sure. Was there a time in your career, I'm sure there was, I had this many times where I felt like I failed a certain swimmer or I failed a team. Like, did you look at yourself sometimes and say, you know, I failed you or how did you justify that with them? You know, disappointment and failure with, with some of your athletes. Oh, Brett, there isn't a coach on the planet. At least I don't think there is that, that just absolutely dies with their athlete if they don't perform at the level that they believe they can. And the, the very first thing that comes out of your mouth is, is that God, what did I, how did I, Mm. how did I, how did I fail this individual? And I feel there are times to this day that I think of as a young coach, the mistakes I made um, with some athletes that could have achieved so much more if I would have done some things a little bit differently with them. And I can't change that. There's nothing I can do to, to other than learn from that and to make sure I don't make that same mistake again. But yes, uh, there's, there are so many people that like so many former athletes I'd would line up and just want to hug them and say, I'm sorry. And, and I certainly admitted to them when I felt like it was, it was something I did or some way on which they were trained and that I didn't do the best job I could do. So there, yeah, that's, that's the hardest part of coaching, but it's also the draw that you want to make a change in someone's life. You want to, you want to make sure that, that there are that they're that they can accomplish they can accomplish what they what they what they dream of and and are there some kids that come into your office and tell you that they want to be the NCAA champion and you know down and deep in your heart that they don't have the talent to do that sure but you just over a period of time you just have to um kind of give them some some small reality checks, but never never throw water on their fire. Mm. And I always believe that, and I really believe this. If you can if you can get kids to grow as people, you can make them good at anything, whether it's fast in the pool or good in school or anything else like that. If if you can get them to grow, because if they're growing then there are less less obstacles, less drama. They become better problem solvers, so there's less problems. And I really felt like that was what I wanted to do from the very first day they stepped on deck, was to get them to grow as people. And whatever it takes to do that, whether it's some community service you need to do with your team, whether it's some challenges that you throw out, whether it's, it's um, whatever the circumstances are, if you can get people to grow, you can make them fast in the pool because like I said, there's less drama, there's less obstacles. They become better problem solvers. Yeah. I'm always uh, of the belief that a happy swimmer is a fast swimmer, right? So um, you've got to find that you've got to find that love and passion and happiness. that's going to, 
put a smile on your face every day. You can't walk in and, and hate what you do and expect great results, you know? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So what do you think about uh, this international swim league? Is it a good thing? Do you, do you like where it's going? Um, you know, how do you feel about it? Well, I can't say that I've really kept up with it, but I think anytime athletes can benefit whether it's financially or experience, the racing, seeing the rest of the world, it, 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 it can't be a bad thing. Is it sustainable? I have no idea because I don't, the, the gentleman that's kind of behind it and uh, in, in the way in which it's going, it's been obviously very beneficial for some athletes that need, well, that need the racing, but also need the funding. Um, so I, I think it, it, it's it's it can be a, it can be a, a, a real positive, and I, I um, unfortunately I think just whether it's the IOC, uh, the USOC, the NCAA, um, uh, there have been many times that I don't feel like they're in touch with what they need to be in touch with when it comes to the athletes and their well-being. And so um, for, you know, for FINA to come out and, and be initially sort of against anything that's going on and won't sanction it and so on, I, I just think that that was a, that was a huge mistake because that sort of exposed what, what I think one of FINA's biggest problems is, and that is not being able to relate to the reality of, of individuals. And when the NCAA came out and made the statement when California passed the law that um, you could, they could, athletes in college could use their likeness and their image for, for um, financial gain. You know, the initial comment coming from the NCAA is, well, you know, these California schools, they may not be able to participate in the NCAA championships. Then all of a sudden, what, 18 other states passed the same thing. And in, and after they had stuck their foot in their mouth, then they started to retract. And now they're trying to work it out and figure it out. So um, I, I think anything that, that, that can benefit our sports and benefit the athletes is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree in that sense. I don't know where it's going. But I, I like the fact that there's more opportunity and chances for athletes to certainly make a living from this sport because it's a grueling sport and you certainly wouldn't want to be in a situation where you have to go out and um, supplement your income through a job and trying to swim at the same time. It's very tough. And I know there are athletes right now that are doing that. I'm not saying that, that that's not happening, but it would be nice to get to a point where they could actually – make some money and, and live off their income through through what they're doing in the pool every day so um well i appreciate all your thoughts and and i think we could talk for hours honestly there's so many things to chat about and then you're you're so you've got such a wealth of information and experience is there a book in the works are you working on something like that um i've thought about it a little bit but um you know, I've, I've, I've been fortunate in that uh, I've been doing some speaking to non-sports groups 
and and I I really do believe that sport has learned more from business than business has learned from sport. Mm. And so um I'm 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 actually trying to um to get out to get out on a little bit more of a of a speaking uh tour type and I have some things in the works and and I'm I've been I've, I've been very fortunate to have that opportunity so I, I don't know if 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 writing a book is is something that would be would be helpful I'll 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 see how the speaking goes but I think the 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 key thing is is that we all no matter who we are, the experiences that we've had and that we, we, we share those experiences and um, the good and the bad, because that's life. It's, uh, there's, you know, life's difficult. I, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you make and what you've accomplished. Life is difficult. And, to embrace that, but to still live, to be, to move forward in it is, is the key. So anything that, that I could say to anyone or you or anyone else that's been in a position of leadership is, I think is the most important thing that we do is that we, our job is to, is to try and help people through this life. So whatever that means, I think that's what we're supposed to be doing. Well, yeah, that's that's why I started this podcast because I have amazing people in my life like you who I have conversations with, and I'm like, this has to be shared. This people have to hear this stuff, and so I'm really glad you were able to take some time today. I'm thankful for it. I'm I'm hopeful that people are going to learn a lot from just listening to your voice and and listening to the words and and your experiences because. I think they're so valuable and I'd love to see a book personally, but um, certainly I'm glad you're doing the speaking tour and, and sharing your thoughts with us today. So thanks a lot, Frank. I appreciate it. Great. It was, it was a real honor talking to you and best of luck with this and, and uh, your family and, and everything that um, you continue to do for our sport. It's, I, I certainly appreciate it very much. All right. Great. Well, you take care and we'll catch up soon. Okay. Look forward to it. Thank you very much. All right, bye. Bye Bye-bye.